0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by
0: advertising outside the UK.
1: BBC Sounds.
0: Music, radio, podcasts. In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds on the 14th of September. Until then, each week we're offering an episode from our archive of nearly 1,000 programmes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Have a good summer. Hello. In 1550, at Royal Command, two sides met in Valladolid in Spain to debate the future of slavery in the new Spanish colonies in the Americas. One following Aristotle argued that native people were natural slaves who went with the land and should stay slaves. The other argued that others might be slaves, but these were Spanish subjects and should be treated as equals. This defender of Native American rights was Bartolome de las Casas, and some say he was one of the first proponents of human rights anywhere. With me to discuss the Valladolid debate are Julia McClure, lecturer in late medieval and early modern global history at the University of Glasgow, John Edwards, faculty fellow in Spanish at the University of Oxford, and Caroline Dodds Pennock, senior lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield. Caroline Pennock, just to go to the blunt beginning a bit, the Spanish went over first Columbus in 19, 1492, then Cortes in about 1519, and conquered. The Aztecs, which was the start of the great, uh, the great movement of Spain into that part of the world.
2: Yes, that's right. So, first, the Aztecs in Mexico, yeah. They go into the Caribbean, following Columbus, as you say, in 1492. And then by the 1520s, they're starting to expand across the mainland, conquering large areas of territory in Central America.
0: And it appears to the Spanish and to many people as a, almost a miraculous victory over so many people by so few.
2: Yes, and that's how it's been talked about since, that this is these few conquistadors and missionaries conquering huge areas of territory. It's a a grand myth of conquest by an evangelical army.
0: Yes, but they had guns, the others didn't, and cannons, the others didn't, and horses, the others didn't, and they also made allies with other tribes.
2: That's true. I would say that the technology actually is relatively minor, in my opinion. The two big factors are disease, because the indigenous people don't have any natural resistance to European diseases and also the alliances you mentioned with other indigenous groups.
0: The Spanish exported the encomienda system, which is going to be important in this conversation, to the new territories. What was that and why is it important?
2: The encomienda system is a way of granting groups of indigenous people to specific Spaniards or institutions. It comes from the Spanish verb encomendar, which means to entrust. And theoretically, it's a reciprocal system where the, a Spaniard gives Christianity and civilization and protection to a group of indigenous people in exchange for tribute from them in the form of labour or gold or goods that they produce in reality it becomes a kind of forced labour service and it also extends to their land in reality, very often if you're given a village to look after you essentially take their lands so some people have compared it to slavery, although the encomienda, Indians as they're called at the time actually have rather more legal rights than an enslaved person would
0: Yes, and that's where we're going to try to explore what sort of whether it was slavery or whether they, that there weren't slaves, and a huge debate really underneath it all between what is a slave, who is a slave, and who is not a slave, uh, and how do they arrive at those different, as it were, descriptions or destinations? Um, how did you get to grab this land? You went there as a conquistador. There weren't many of you. Uh, did you have a piece of paper from the king? What was going on?
2: Essentially, you had a piece of paper from the king. It goes back to um, Columbus discovering the land, discovering obviously being a terrible word for somewhere where there are lots of other people originally, anyway but discovering, (laughs) by right of discovery the Spanish crown go to the Pope and in 1493 the Pope gives them a papal bull called interquetera and that grants them the land on the right uh, on condition they evangelize it and this is important for understanding the encomienda because a lot of what the spanish do in this period is about evangelization and proving they're doing that but in practice on the ground you need a, um, a, a contract from the crown giving you the right to either explore or to conquer or to settle and there are slightly different kinds of contracts from the crown
0: the Pope claims authority over all the land in the world that is not Christianized. He owns it and you have to get his permission to move in it. Not or literally
2: owns it, it, though that is how they behave. Yeah, not, well, um, is but is a better word? He claims, well, th- it's interesting because it comes into the Valladolid debates. Um, there's a big debate about the right of what's called dominion, the right to rule in your own land. The Pope doesn't claim to have the complete secular right of dominion the right to rule everywhere but he claims to have the right to tell people where they can go and teach the faith and then there are big debates about the ways it's legitimate to do that can you use force or not which we're going to kind of get into I think
0: yes but so you go this piece of paper literally one isn't being uh, um, dumbing down here you go to a piece of paper and you say I am allowed this lot of land there's a lot of people on it these people belong to me and they will do what I say
2: pretty much, and by, from 1513 when they invent a document called the Requirement, the Recchiri they kind of literally do that. From 1513 to legitimate the conquest you turn up with a, with a copy of the Requirement, the Recchiri and you read it out and it says basically, here's a potted history of the world according to Christianity. God gave the world to the Pope, the Pope gave it to the Spanish, the Spanish have given the right to come here to me. Would you accept that and agree to listen to the faith? And if you don't, then uh, we're allowed to um, make war on you. Now, of course, this is a joke. Often they don't even understand you. I was
0: about to say, you read it out to whom?
2: To the indigenous people. Who in don't
0: understand the language. Who so often that doesn't get don't verified, understand.
2: Does it? No, exactly. Uh, Bartolome de las Casas said he didn't know whether to laugh or cry about the requirement.
0: But this was enough to get the thing going.
2: It was it's considered to be enough. considered to be a legitimating act. Um, something that made your conquest legal you were actually supposed to do it in front of a notary someone was supposed to write down that you'd fulfilled this requirement
0: Right, John Edwards um, in the short term and immediate term what impact did the Spanish have on uh, the peoples they encountered in, uh, in, in that part of America Mexico and around the Caribbean
3: well they had a, a react, you know, an uh, um, impact in various ways of course um, the religious question we've already started talking about they um, But simply the presence of people, Um, and it's not only the Spanish, for example, who bring in their diseases, um, which the Native Americans would not have had immunity to, but also, I think even more important in some ways, livestock. Um, And so you start getting two things happening, really. The exploitation of the Labour force in an obsession, of course, to find gold, which is the one other thing we need to mention here. Um, The belief, well, that gold would be found um, even in the Caribbean islands and certainly in the mainland. Um, This... Comes, of course, to be as vital as the evangelization project. Um, and both of them are seen as sort of central interests of the Spanish monarchy and then of the Habsburg Empire as it becomes part of that. Is the evangelization a uh, real purpose or is it a blind? <sighs> it's. If you look at the, the the records that we've got, like some of the major writers, some of whom were conquistadores who did the conquering themselves, um, I think the ones who were not ordained or religious churchmen, they, of course, did, I think were sincere, totally um, – the others, the secular colonists as it were, often were simply conventional Spanish Christians of their own day. I think we have to bear in mind also, that, of course, a lot of mental baggage comes with the Spaniards when they go to the New World including feudalism, which really underlies the encomienda thing. Um, in other words, serfdom as well as actual slavery. Um, but also the um, great sort of shortages of um, bullion and resources, which were and when Columbus starts out, for example, the first thing he does is desperately try and find any little nuggets of gold he can see to brew to Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs, that they were justified in funding his expeditions Maybe I didn't make myself clear enough, I didn't Uh, Was the
0: drive to conversion was it a very respectable cover for the drive to find gold? and exploit the people there? Or was it part of it in a profound
3: way? I think it's... A, uh, the others may disagree, but I mean, I think this is a tough thing about the mentality of the period yeah. in which it genuinely is impossible to separate the religious motives from what we would call the economic ones or and, political...
0: Sorry. Bartolome de las Casas was one of the owners of these uh, properties. Uh, His father had sailed with Columbus. What abuses did he report? He's very important to the story. What abuses did he report in the beginning?
3: He, um, it was actually another member of the order. He joined the Dominican Order of Friars uh, Alonso de Montesinos, who first publicly denounced the behaviour of the colonists. He, what was, he said they are also man, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was. He started off by going for the abuse of the grants that had been made. In other words, the labour force was being treated back, it was being over-exploited, um, as well as any problems about disease which we mentioned. Um, and Las Casas seems to have had a, well a conversion in two senses. One is that he converts literally, which just was the term, by becoming a Dominican friar. And, of course, this was the very active preaching order from Europe, um, which had already combated heresy. Um, it was founded to do so, in fact, in the 13th century. And so what we have now is um, them among the Gentiles, as it were, the people who never had Christianity. Um, on the abuses question, yes, it, it, he de- it, it is the beginning of Las Casas' crusade.
0: Julia McClure, um, the, pomp- the Pope had granted the right, indeed, the duty, uh, not only... To conquer, but to convert. How did the conversion happen? How did they set about doing it?
1: Yes, indeed. To understand the importance of conversion for the Spanish Empire, we need to go back to this papal bull of 1493 in Caetera, which, in fact, granted the, uh, the donation of the lands in 100 leagues west of the Cape uh, Verde Islands uh, to the Spanish crown for the purposes of conversion. So the mandate for conversion was central to the founding legitimacy of the Spanish Empire. Now, what happened was there was a debate about how that conversion should be carried out and the methodology of that conversion. Uh, particularly between the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, there was a clash about the methodology of that conversion. And the Franciscans had been engaged with mass baptisms, and the Dominicans came along and said this wasn't a real uh, conversion because the Amerindians couldn't understand what had happened, uh, they hadn't been brought to the faith by reason. This is significant because uh, Bartolome de las Casas, as we've mentioned, joined the Dominican order and he joined this debate. And significantly, in 1537, he published a tract, um, The Unico Modo, uh, The Only Way of Converting People to the True Faith, in which he argued that it was really important to uh, bring people to, to the faith by reason, Uh, through peaceful proselytising. Now, there's three important implications of that uh, text that he publishes. It shows that uh, there's no kind of mandate for force, that people need to be compelled through uh, peaceful methodologies. This also has implications for um, the political sphere because it, it ties into later arguments about the need to have consent for sovereignty and it also ties in interestingly to the way he's been uh, fitted into the intellectual history of rights in that it focuses on the importance of the, r- the will so that, that people must be uh, free to choose um, and, and, f- and have their, their freedom respected in
0: this. If they converted them to Christianity the implication is that they thought they had a soul to be saved. If they had a soul to be saved didn't that make them equal to other Christians?
1: Exactly and so uh, this the text that uh, Las Casas wrote, uh, The Only Way, was in fact influential for Pope uh, Paul III in the uh, bull that he issued also in 1537, Sublimus Deus, which recognised the rationality of the Amerindians. So, and, uh, and so re- recognising that they had a soul to be saved.
0: So that plays a part in what we're going towards, which is what is slavery? What is their position? And these phrases came up all the time. Are they monkeys, not men? This is part of it. The soul is part of it.
1: Exactly, yes. The capacity for human reason in particular.
0: They're thought to be without reason by some people.
1: By some people, for example, um, Sepulveda, who we're going to come on to with the debates.
0: That without reason, and yet we're talking about a city bigger than any city in Europe, we're talking about a place with laws that can do writing, I mean magnificent place, and they still what was staring them in the face didn't matter one way or another
1: Well it's interesting the, um, the Sepulveda who puts forward some of these arguments that you've just mentioned, had in fact never visited uh, Latin America although of course um, he'd have read different reports from conquistadores there was uh, knowledge of the Americas in uh, Spain at this time, but he had never himself visited
0: Thank you. Caroline Pennock, what were the new laws of 1542? They're there, Cortes has arrived 23 years earlier, and they're taking over all over the place. There's brutality, people are being forced labour, and so on and so forth. These new laws came in. What were they?
2: So what happens
0: is... And who who, who promulgated them?
2: uh, The laws are promulgated by the Spanish crown in 1542, and they are intended to defend the indigenous people, and to improve their rights and their treatment. What's happened is that um, Las Casas and many other missionaries have been campaigning at court across the early part of the 16th century and saying to the Crown, look at the abuses that are happening. People are publishing, they're writing, they're appearing at court and campaigning, essentially, on behalf of the Indigenous people. And in 1542, they issue these laws which have essentially three central points. There's lots of smaller points, but essentially three central points to treat the Indigenous people better. So there are a number of laws about what they can and can't be used for in terms of their labour, what they should receive um, in, in terms of support and, and well-being, uh, that they cannot under any circumstances be enslaved and before this point there were justifications for slavery but at this point they said from henceforth you cannot hold indigenous people as slaves and if you think you have the right to do so you have to come to Spain and prove your legal title to the indigenous people you hold and thirdly they abolished the encomienda effectively by declaring that when encomenderos, holders of encomiendas died, their encomiendas would revert to the crown
0: how effective were these unions? How long did they last? Not very long. Uh, Well,
2: technically quite long, but in reality not very long because what happens is that the encomenderos, who are the most powerful figures amongst the colonists, are not very happy about this. They've been happily exploiting indigenous labour, forcing people to work for them, and so they're pretty angry about it. In Peru, there is an actual revolt, a sort of civil war, and they cut off the governor's head and carry it around on a string. The viceroy of Mexico sees what's happening in Peru and thinks, this isn't a very good idea. So he suspends the laws. He applies to the crown to suspend the laws. He doesn't implement them. Um, And letters and and emissaries go back to the crown saying, this is a terrible idea, we shouldn't do it. The interesting thing from my point of view, though, which gets forgotten often, is that the laws remain in effect in Spain. So indigenous people who are in Spain are able to use them to apply for their freedom from enslavement, things like that.
0: But not the millions uh, in the over in Mexico and, uh, and, and Middle America John Edwards, so this pressure on the Spanish crown is it the sense of this crown versus the Pope here in, over these new laws
3: that's a very interesting way of putting it um, not, a, not, not a usual way <laughs> um, because of course the Spanish crown regarded itself as the big defender of the papacy and its claims all over the place but they seem to be been at odds here they were yeah. Yes, and I think you've got to open this out a bit, actually, into European politics. We'll do just briefly, but to understand what's going on, you've not only had, um, in 1492, the conquest of the last bit of Muslim Spain by the Trastamaran dynasty, but then the descent to the Habsburgs of Charles, yeah. the, Charles V, um, um, who becomes Holy Roman emperor, hence the fifth, who's first of Spain... Um, and he therefore becomes a defender of Christendom. Great fears that he will be the universal monarch, in other words, a hegemon over all of Europe. Um, now, um, the Habsburgs and the papacy clashed very often in Europe they clashed over how to deal with Martin Luther and the reformers um, and they clashed over other things so yes we can say that by this time 1542 and onwards with the new laws and then the debates uh, there was a great deal of tension between the two Um, and so the Habsburgs are actually in quite an awkward position because they've got to deal with their own Spanish subjects and their interests, um, but they were also trying to sort out the Reformation. Um, and so yes, I mean I think that um, So we are have a clash between the Pope and the Crown. Yes. And it gets very bad. I mean by the by the time we get to Pope Paul the Fourth, fifteen fifty five to nine, he wants to excommunicate the Habsburgs they, this, the Holy Roman Emperor. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah.
0: Julia, Julia McClure. So they gathered, They gathered. who are they, in Valladolid in Spain in 1550. What was the purpose of that?
1: Well, I think, actually, uh, we need to start that the story of the debates with, uh, at 1547, which is when um, Juan uh, Inés de Sepulveda, publi- uh, well, not publishes, sorry, composes uh, this uh, key text, um, Democratas uh, Alta, also known as Democratas Secundus, um, at the bequest of the Council of the Indies. And this is... Um, the, you had in petitioning uh, by the likes of Bartolomé de las Casas and others contesting the legitimacy of the conquest, uh, challenging the violence of the encomenderos and the Council of the Indies and also the Crown. Wants a kind of tract that uh, asserts the legitimacy and the fact that it's a just war uh, of the, the Spanish Empire. So this text is composed, but it's not published. It's withheld from publishing, and in fact it's uh, put under investigation. And uh, Sepúlveda, who was a key uh, humanist at the time, very uh, important in Spanish society was uh, really upset by the withholding of this work from publication, and uh, this kind of uh, dispute between Bartolomé de las Casas and um, Sepúlveda escalates from 1497. And then what happens is on the 16th of so
0: April. let's just—that's brilliant. But just just to get everybody keep up, keep us up. You now let's let leave it with these two men. Yeah. Las Casas and um, Sepúlveda. Now. B- Seppelbait's classicist is translated Aristotle, he believes in Aristotle's idea that they're a natural slave. Discusses says this is terrible, we cannot put up with this. These are human, these are people. And let's use these two as the centre of the debate. So What's what's Sepulveda up to?
1: The council is called on the 16th of April in 1550 in order to resolve this. And Sepulveda has effectively argued that the war in Latin America is a just war because the Amerindians can be classed uh, using the Aristotelian category of natural slavery. And he argues that this is because, uh, as he sees it, they're without religion, without customs, uh, uh, laws without uh, cities, that they have barbaric customs, including the uh, slaughtering of the innocents, and uh, that in fact uh, this uh, this can be framed as a just war because, for example, they can be uh, the, the there's a saving of the innocents that that that, um, that could be argued. So it's kind of really about a framing of the uh, of just war around around this issue.
0: Most of what you said about him is just plain wrong. What he said about them he hadn't been there, as you say. Who gave him this false information?
1: Well, I think he was uh, basing on a, a compilation of sources yeah. uh, and reports and also responding to demands of the encomenderos, who were also kind of describing the, uh, the Amerindians and so this was kind of um, you know, where the, he was getting his material from for writing this tract but he's also referring back to how he could fit the category of the Amerindians within pre-existing categories and in this case he already has the category of Aristotle's natural slaves and he kind of thinks about the way this could be uh, imposed upon the Amerindians who... Yeah. And
0: you also said they were like, more like monkeys than men.
1: Well, so he actually describes them as uh, somewhat lesser, lesser than humans, but he accepts that they're humans. But the category of natural slavery is not a fixed state. It's one that you can actually graduate out of with the right kind of stewardship and protect, protection. And so he says, you know, as, um, he describes them as Uh, children to adults and nearly as monkeys to men although whether he actually said that or whether that was um, polemicising by Las Casas we're not entirely sure
0: Well let's turn to Las Casas Um, What did he argue Caroline? What was his case?
2: So Las Casas argued and he took a long time to argue it so Pulveda presented quite a short tract and Las Casas talked for five days and it's not at all clear whether he said everything he was going to or whether they stopped him after five days but he had an enormous amount of ethnographic information suggesting that these people were civilised and, in his view, very innocent, very open to conversion. He even makes the case that human sacrifice shows how devout they are, that if only you could turn them to Christianity, they would be the most devout people on earth. So he counters the idea that they're uncivilised. But he also is very... Strongly against the idea that there is any justification for war to impose the faith. As Julia said, there's a big debate here about what a just war is and how one can impose one's beliefs, the method you can do that. He never says that empire is wrong during the debates or, or that they shouldn't be trying to convert these people and change their beliefs. He believes that it should be done by peaceful means. And he very strongly denounces the abuses of the conquistadors and of the encomenderos as essentially making a proper conversion impossible. How can you bring people to the love of Christ through violence? This kind of argument,
0: And he spoke admiringly of the uh, Amerindians, didn't he?
2: Very admiringly, although also quite patronisingly. Mm. So he sees them as children, as uh, lambs to be led to the knowledge of God. Um, he is very admiring of them, and he also talks admiringly of their institutions, but it's very Which much a paternalistic... Um, so, for example, law, uh, monarchy, writing the uh, recording of their histories there are many missionaries in this period that spend a lot of time recording these indigenous civilizations because they're so sophisticated and so he does speak very admiringly of them but it is also a very paternalistic viewpoint, the idea that he still uh, he and his fellow missionaries need to lead them to Christ.
0: Have we uh, any idea, John Edwards, how these arguments went down Uh, the pro and ante Was, was there any system of voting or judgments?
3: what was going on? I think it's worth saying that the, the debates aren't really debates in the form, as we understand them, of cut and thrust, um, like in Parliament. Um, they, I think there's a very interesting parallel with, the, the, with what was also going on in Europe in that time, the Council of Trent, that was supposed to be settling the future of the Catholic Church, its doctrine and, and reform. And the techniques are the same. People present their views... Um, are they
0: unchallenged?
3: They are. Well, not they are, but usually in back rooms, right. uh, in, in, in the committee meetings behind the scenes. In the formal sessions, everything will be very rigid. One person speaks, sits down, another one gets up. Um, but a judgment is made by a designated group. I-
2: I just uh, want to say, though, that although you don't debate each other, Las Casas did write a response to Sepúlveda's points.
1: Oh,
3: yes.
2: And Sepúlveda was very angry about it because mm. he thought he should have been allowed to do a response as well, but actually only Las Casas mm. does. So there was
3: a lot of dispute about that kind of procedure. Mm. There was in Trent as well, um, where everyone wanted a full say. Um, but it was, there was this tradition. Of, so the Spanish themselves had a tradition, which they'd used um, with Erasmus a bit earlier, 1527, of having what they would call a committee, in which a group of theologians, in that case, would produce their own opinions. And then the, the Inquisitor General and the Crown would have a verdict, as it were.
0: Was it an event, a debate, <coughs> excuse me, that, as it were, all Europe were watching? Was,
3: did, did it seem something central? John, can you I, give us some idea of that? I don't think it was. No, I mean, it it was very much an internal Spanish matter. Um, And it went on being the question of the Indies, I mean, a a bit after this. For example, not long after these debates, you see, in 1554, uh, Prince Philip, about to become king of Spain, became king of England. And there were debates about the Indies of the Spanish Council while they were in London, which the English were not included in. Um, This stuff was very much kept, I think, as a Spanish matter, Um, you know, not even a general Habsburg one, in fact
0: I think we've got the threads in the right place, Uh, I'm sure you've got, yes, so we're all right there okay, Julia, it's uh, Julia McClure, it's tempting to see Las Casas as uh, a hero in the arguments, and he did good good arguments, these arguments resonate with us in ways that the others don't, can you just tell us more about those arguments please, and what he founded them on
1: Well, I think there's been uh, multiple attempts to... go against the romanticisation of Las Casas in recent Why? years. Why?
0: do you want to pull him down?
1: Well, <laughs> um, He's often associated with um, uh, instigating the uh, start of black slavery into the Americas, although we, we can debate this. It's uh, probably not down to Las Casas, but in 1516, when he writes the Remedios, when he's thinking about how could the um, labour shortage be addressed in the Americas, he suggests that they could uh, introduce black slaves. He then later recants on this. He and recants then,
0: on that. It's quite important that he recants.
1: It mean? is important that he yeah. recants on it, uh, especially uh, after the debates, he kind of uh, is more uh, polemical against slavery uh, in general. But overall, he's not opposing slavery as an institution because there are different frameworks for understanding the legitimacy of slavery coming out of the the, the late Middle Ages that he's not challenging. So, for example, one could be a slave if they, you know, if they were um, considered to be a natural slave, or if they were opposing. Who a, would say
0: they were natural? Who would do the considering?
1: Uh, this, is a, yeah, this is a good question so in the case of um, in the, case of the, the uh, black slaves that arrive in the Spanish Empire, effectively the Spanish Empire is able to outsource the moral questioning of that matter to the Portuguese Empire by saying well these people have already been enslaved in Africa by the Portuguese, so uh, that's somewhat sta- sidestepping the issue on the case of the, the, the Spanish but the other uh, significant thing to say about the interventions in Las Casas and why they, ha- they were so problematic is that he, he was on the one hand defending the Amerindians but he was also romanticising them and essentializing them and it's argued that in doing so he actually contributed to the, the racialization of the Amerindians and he also How created... By saying, for example, that they were um, that meek and and humble in their d- in his defense of them, he was kind of creating a certain essentializing um, uh, depiction of them and this also played into how. The, the Spanish Empire proceeded in terms of its uh, constructing of its own legitimacy by thinking of the uh, Amerindians as a protectorate, those who were too weak to be governed and therefore needed to be governed uh, on their behalf until they were able to sort of graduate from this position. The other important thing that he does is that he creates a kind of moral hierarchy. He says famously uh, where, you know, that everyone is, uh, is equal before God, but there's also space there for saying they're not equal politically, and he actually kind of creates a framework. Uh, he's the Described by some as the founder of comparative ethnography, in fact, because he says that uh, th- there are different groups uh, you know, that, that don't uh, that there's differences between the Amerindians. So, for example, the Chichimecas in the north were more wild, whereas the Taino were seen to be uh, more meek and humble. And this hierarchy, uh, this this uh, creates a framework for how uh, the enslavement of the Amerindians actually plays out.
0: Do you agree with this, uh, Colin? This, this this characterisation of Las Casas?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a fairly, um, he, I, I, it's a fairly well established thing in the historiography, actually, that Las Casas is a complicated figure because he writes so much over his life and he also changes his views over his life so much that it's very hard to be exactly clear about, uh, to, to present him in a, um, a monolithic way. You know, he's not a a hero. He does suggest introducing slavery. He does legitimate empire. He does think that you should civilize indigenous people. He does treat them as if they are subjects for study who can be racially ranked. But at the same time he is i think a man before his time a man who is one of the first to suggest that all men are equal before god and that all are capable of civility he never does take on the question of what happens if you refuse in the end to be converted you know at what point where's the edge of his tolerance for people's civility is is an interesting
0: question what's the resonance of this of this argument in the in the streets of spain at the time
2: It's hard to know how much people are actually talking about this argument, but it's certainly the case that we tend to think of this as a very abstract debate, something that's just happening amongst theologians and politicians and encomenderos as well, you know, who are very keen to get the right results so they can carry on being in charge and imposing their will on indigenous people. But actually, there are thousands of indigenous Americans in Spain at this time probably tens of thousands. The statistics are very hard to get, many of them as enslaved people. And so I don't think you can divorce this from ongoing debates about how you treat the people that you're next to as well, about how you treat the people, your workers. And I mentioned briefly earlier that the new laws carry on being implemented in Spain and we see hundreds of Native Americans with the aid of the Spanish crown appealing for their freedom in the 1540s and 1550s. They see these debates happening, these questions and they say, actually I am a free person I should not be enslaved I'm not sure if I've answered your question but it's I don't think the debates resonate in the streets. I don't think people are chatting about them around the fountain. But I do think that the legal implications have much more of a resonance in Spain than perhaps we give them credit for.
0: John Edwards, what bearing did this debate have on the new transatlantic slave
3: trade? Well, I suppose if you look at it objectively... Um, not a lot, <laughs> because in fact the, the the encomienda system does survive, more or less. Um, I mean, nothing really changes until we get to um, around 1800, really, when the empire starts breaking up in the Napoleonic period. So sorry Caroline
2: I was just going to say well the encomienda system sort of dies its own death and is replaced mm. by other forms of forced labour service like the repartimiento right so
3: yes <laughs> which is another old medieval technique revived you know that was the repartimiento was an allocation of holdings um, by the crown um, and they th- this begins back with the reconquest of southern Spain in the 13th century repartimiento um, is a hell and so the um, yeah I mean that's that's another thing so, the, sorry, you would say. Well,
1: just to add to that, that the the first asiento, so license to introduce black slaves into. Uh the Caribbean was issued in 1518 and actually new data from the Transatlantic Slave Database shows that there was uh, a, a more a higher volume of black slaves into Latin America than previously thought so this was really starting from uh, at least 1518 to impact on the composition of the labour force but at the same time it's crucial to notice that this is not um, racialised chateau slavery in the same way that we're familiar with from the British Empire and in fact there was also kind of substantial free black, black populations across latin america in urban centers especially such as uh, mexico city also in lima so this uh, uh, black people are entering the, the spanish empire but they're and un- possibly as slaves but not necessarily always staying as slaves
0: so john to a certain extent it's, it's in the nature of a lot of a lot of sound and some fury signifying nothing
3: Um, Well, it has... I do think it has European implications. I think that um, in the sense that the way we're dealing with all these questions in the New World must, must never... We must never forget the, the old world, the, the, that in fact, as far as people in Spain were concerned, um, the Mediterranean, the Turks, were just as important as anything that happened in, in America. And there was a lot of link of people and ideas and, and behavior between them. But was there
0: any uh, change in the attitude of the colonists after this uh, after this treaty, after this meeting? Did they behave better, to put it in its, at its most simple?
3: Well, I, I don't know what the others think, but I would say there was a the mixture pretty much as before. In other words, there were idealists, there were those who... Caroline said you know had the the gospel view as they'd brought it with them from from Europe and um, those could be um, friars or there could be priests um, and uh, they certainly were were still there and Las Casas was revered in his order for example you know evermore um, but on the other hand um, you do have a situation in which um, you know, basically the economic interests go on, and it is very much to do with the catastrophic financial situation of the Habsburgs. You know, the the, the famous decline of Spain, in so far as it was one thing, um, begins certainly by mid-century, about the time of these debates. It's um, and goes on until Spain stops being, you know, a top-class power. Is that because they're not getting enough gold? Well, it's one of the major factors. Caroline,
2: I just wanted to say that it's easy to turn this into a debate as well that's about Spaniards um, imposing will on indigenous Americans but actually Mm. some of the encomiendas are held by indigenous people so Moctezuma's daughters and their descendants hold encomiendas and uh, some of the indigenous cabildos hold encomiendas or want to hold encomiendas so there are also indigenous people involved in this debate who are sending petitions either because they want to keep holding their encomiendas or more often because they want to contest the encomienda system. You see Las Casas actually speaking as a representative of indigenous communities it's very easy to deprive indigenous people of any agency in this debate at all and it just become about the spanish imposing things on them but although they're experiencing devastating loss of populations and and of communities destruction of communities they also are fighting to find their own place in these debates Yes, yeah, so well, just the, the significance of this uh, action is that the Spanish Crown effectively
1: suspends the licensing of further conquest while this debate takes place, and what this shows is that the, the Spanish Crown is prepared to get, prepared to give. In a time to consider this matter, that it considers this matter to be important. And to echo what Caroline's just said, this shows also to people uh, within empire that there's a place for uh, that those petitions from across empire that are sent by mulattos from Mexico City, from black people from, uh, from Lima will be heard eventually by empire, that, you know, even if that doesn't happen all the time because of the, many of these petitions are lost, might not reach the crown, but there's a framework where at least it's established that, that is um, important to the way that the empire operates.
0: Um, so what would you say the legacy of this uh, of this debate was this 1550 51 debate
1: I think uh, because the, the, the texts that we're, we're talking about, this um, Democratis Alta, and some of the publications, some of the, the texts also of Las Casas, weren't actually published during this time. And, it, and I think the legacy has been, in many ways, a kind of delayed legacy, because actually some of the reportings of these, uh, that what's happening in the council are, of um, of, this, of the Valladolid council, aren't even being reported back to the uh, Council of Castile at this time. And so, uh, in many ways, it's being discovered uh, later, people are looking at these texts also in the 19th century and uh, and it's at this point that you have in the 19th century uh, also the likes of independence leaders like uh, Simón Bolivar talk about the importance of Las Casas as, a, as the first defender of, uh, of Latin American rights for example and then later on in the 20th century you have the um, Theology of Liberation movement takes up um, Las Casas as a defender of the, the, the rights of the Amerindians and many of the uh, Rights centres in Latin America today are named after Las Casas.
0: Was there any sense of improvement of the condition of the uh, of the Native Americans after this?
2: Not really, I'm afraid. Um, the new laws do give the scope for Indigenous people to challenge their treatment. They're actually reissued in a watered down version that allows encomiendas to survive for two generations in the first instance in 1552. Um, so you do get some more protections for Indigenous people and, and as I said, you do continue to have Indigenous councils and Indigenous nobles and in some cases groups of commoners or ordinary people petitioning within this structure that Julia talked about they 're aware that there are ways of petitioning ways of of getting to the crown and getting to authority and the Aztec people or the former Aztec people actually get into that really quickly because they had a big petitioning legal system, so they quite quickly adapt to the Spanish legal system and start getting involved with it but i, I wouldn 't say that anything changed as a result of the Valladolid debates at all specifically, though there are incremental shifts in what people can do legally all across that period
0: John was there a sense that the idea of this battle between who is what is a slave and who is a slave and who is not a slave and who is a half slave and who is a natural slave that feed into an ongoing argument
3: I think it does definitely and into the debate as we tend to know it from much more recent times yes I I think it does and I think um, another thing about long term influence which as we've been saying, you know, takes a while to get going after, after the debate, is of course that Las Casas' portrayal of the behaviour of the colonists, particularly for example in his Bellavisima Relacion, his short account of the destruction of the Indies as he calls it, um, is it does begin to develop something that was already going on in Europe, a black legend about Spanish society and its behaviour abroad. You know, and this applies as much in Europe as it does in um, America but what's interesting from our point of view is of course that instantly the potential rival imperial powers in Europe take this stuff up it's absolute gift to the French, to the Dutch, later to the English um, to show that the Spanish are in fact misgovernors um, and, and so in that sense it has a great influence I think
1: well, just to add to that, this devastation of the Indies this, uh, that Bartolome de las Casas writes, it gets mm. illustrated by Theodore de debris and this uh, creates this imagery of the excessive violence of the Spanish Empire. And in fact, the uh, British Empire uses that as legitimation for uh, incursions into the Spanish Empire in the north by saying it's liberating uh, the Amerindians from the excessive violence of the Spanish.
0: Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Julie McClure, uh, John Edwards, and Caroline dodds Next week, it's the evolution of horses, from their dog-sized ancestor to their mass extinction in the New World and domestication in Asia. Thank you very much for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus
0: material from Melvin and his guests. Thank you. That was a gallop. Yes.
2: <laughs> oh, yes it's it's all
0: worldwide here, you know, <laughs> over the centuries. Yeah. <laughs> a lot going on. What would you like to have said you didn't say?
2: Um, I, I mean, I talked a little bit about the agency of Indigenous people, and I think it's very mm. easy in these debates, isn't it, to make it all about Europeans talking about Indigenous people and sure. blur them out. And I tried, because that's obviously what I'm interested in as a scholar of Indigenous people, to try and sketch them back in a little bit. Mm. But it... it Because it's all so theoretical and so top-down, I suppose, it it can be very difficult to see them being an influence in these debates until you start recognising the way in which the different issues overlap. So, as you said, it was a a gallop through a lot of different issues. And the problem is that Valladolid is an exemplar of lots of things that are going on, isn't it? So Las Casas is appearing not just... Petitioning in the Valladolid debates, but he's appearing as an expert witness on behalf of indigenous people who would like to be freed, testifying that they're speaking Mexican languages. He um, writes a big, absolutely excoriating petition on behalf of a Mexica who is imprisoned for his part in the Mishton revolt and he's campaigning on his behalf in Spain. All of these kinds of things are going on at the same time and they, they overlap and feed into those debates. And just to add to that, I think it's important to see
1: um, Las Casas as in many ways a tip of an iceberg of this system of petitioning which in mm-hmm. effect is coming from all over the, the Spanish Empire mm-hmm. and that is driving legislative change in a way that you see the, the Empire is being responsive okay we can question how important uh, law is in this sense of is law then regulating violence in the way that it's responding to the petitions but there's a sense that uh, marginalised voices could be heard and that was part of uh, the the way that the the Spanish Empire was conducting itself part of the way that we can think of the constitutional mandate of the Spanish Empire how it's thinking about its own um, validity
3: John I think, going on again from that, I mean, I'm very conscious of the fact that there's a sort of intellectual basis for all this discourse, both sides in that debate. Um, Aristotle again... um, mediated usually um, until the Renaissance period throughout the Middle Ages um, through the work of theologians uh, particularly of course Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican um, theologian um, and that um, but of course with the Renaissance and the return to the original text to the sources um, then you've got a different line I mean it's fascinating to, but they've got a common discourse um, and it's also I think it's a lot of it is about intellectual method, I mean the other thing about the Dominicans like his order in this period is the fact that Thomist scholarship, this is scholasticism of a Aquinas Dominican kind, proof. this is Aquinas, mm. absolutely um, particularly the University of Salamanca but in, in others as well was immensely powerful and dynamic and developing it was affecting the way in which the Catholic Church tried to sort it itself out in the Council of Trent and it was to do with these imperial disputes that we've been talking about, you know, the fact that um, this was as it were the language mm-hmm. which you used
2: You're right, they're, they're, it's tempting to set up um Sepulveda and Aristotle and, and natural slavery against Las Casas but actually Las Casas doesn't reject Aristotelian theory he tries exactly it, and he tries to yes. defend indigenous people based on Aristotelian theory and the idea that they uh, fulfil all of Aristotle's criteria for the good life and he doesn't reject natural slavery either as I, I think you said he, he simply argues that it is a category that is limited to a very few people but it's not a category you can apply to a group of people is Las Casas' argument
1: but his methodologies are also interesting because he, on the one hand, is trained uh, as a lawyer and he's thinking about uh, the, the, the arguments of Aquinas and, uh, and so on. But at the same time, he's kind of um, very heterodox in his approach because he's bringing in the experience of uh, living in Hispaniola. And mm-hmm. in, for this reason, and it's kind of his more heterodox approach to uh, Thomism, that in many ways he's been left out from many of the intellectual histories that have focused on, for example, mm-hmm. Francisco Vittoria and his essay on the Indies, uh, because it's more... Kind Orthodox in a way,
3: the Dominican Order was split over a number of things in this period. In it, among itself, as it were, and there were there were bitter conflicts. So Las Casas had his friends and his enemies in the order. Um, he, you know, he had some allies, but the whole thing was in flux and i mean i do think this is part of the whole crisis of the reformation and and the council of trent you know the catholicism was having to reexamine itself you could almost see this almost as a sort of subsection of that well, in uh, fact- sorry
1: the, the, well, the councillors that were uh, part of the the, uh, the Valladolid debate, in fact, two yeah. of them were dispatched to the Council of Trent and that was what That's caused right. the delay yeah. in the, uh, the verdict of, of the outcome. Yeah,
2: we mm-hmm. didn't mention that there wasn't a verdict. Yeah. In fact, Las Casas is widely regarded to have won because he won the propaganda war. Mm. His <laughs> materials were widely published afterwards and widely circulated yeah. where cool. Sepulvedas were largely suppressed. Yeah. And of course they fit much more neatly with modern ideas from the 18th century forwards about human rights and so on. So he... Mm. he but both of th- he kind of is seen to have won, but both of them claim to have won. Yeah. They both claim to win.
0: But it's a terrific, it's a fascinating power play, isn't it, between the church and the state, and you wonder how much they overlapped and who be- really believed in what, and then the third element being them over there getting on with it one way or another mm. and not getting on with it. So you yeah, have at least a triangle.
2: Yeah. Although I I didn't actually see it that much as church versus state. Mm. I mean, I, I agreed with everything you said, but much of the pressure for indigenous rights for want of a better word comes from the crown Mm. via the church so the crown people like las casas petition the crown but then it's the crown that implements those laws Mm. there's perhaps because of their sense of mission as the catholic Mm. the catholic monarchs which is a title given Mm. to them by the pope the the spanish crown what's the word It may be partly a legitimating tool, as you say, it's a kind of front, but they also are very possessed of a sense of mission. They, in 1492, they not only encounter the Americas, they also complete the Reconquista uh, from the Moors, as, as you said, and also they... Uh, expel all of the Jewish people from their realms or force them to convert. So there's a real kind of religious fervour and you actually see people saying things like well God has given us these new lands to convert now we've finished with with No more
3: people to convert.
2: Yes we've (coughs) finished with the ones in Spain so we're ready to go to the Americas so it's it's a, Mm. sorry you want to say something? I
3: think yes I mean we've also got to bear in mind all the time that the Spanish church was almost independent by this time by Papal Grant that the patronage of the new world was granted. Charles V actually got it done, but working that way from the start of the... What does independent mean in this context? It means um, that the appointments of all the bishops and so on are basically done by the crown. In many ways, though one must not, of course, make the mistake of saying they're the same, it is pretty much what Henry VIII aimed to do with the English church. At the same time, <laughs> uh, um, France and Spain effectively were running national Catholic churches um, in in this period. So, in that sense, you can't separate the two. It seems to me. And
2: you know? the, no, you're absolutely right. So you you yeah. can't. And, and there's a and of course, then there's the big distinction between the missionary orders and the secular church, the mm. priests who sometimes overlap and sometimes don't. Mm. So, Las Casas is both a secular priest and a m- missionary.
0: But Lucas's reputation has more than lingered on. It's held steady and even grown, hasn't it?
2: I would say it's been revamped
1: in the 20th century, especially uh, by the way that it's used by the Theology Liberation Movement, uh, Gustav Gutierrez, who mm. writes this notable book about uh, Las Casas as the as in standing in solidarity with the poor and the first defender of the rights of the Amerindians, and it's uh, in the wake of this uh, movement that you then have these human rights centres in, for example, Chiapas, where uh, Las Casas was the bishop, uh, having uh, it, it being established in the name of Las
2: Casas. And actually, what's amazing, I I thought that the reason you were wanting to talk about the Valladolid debates on the programme is that there's been a recent resurgence of interest in the debates themselves and Sepulveda versus Las Casas in relation to just war in the wake of 9-11. So you've had a group of mostly legal scholars start to talk about whether Sepulveda and Las Casas' arguments about the extent to which it's just to go to war to impose your beliefs on another culture... Can that be applied to the extent to which it's just to go to war to impose democracy and say defend women from the Taliban? There's actually been a real resurgence of interest. People like Dana Brunstetter yeah. or da- Daniel Brunstetter and Dana Zartner, sorry, who have written on on that question. And actually. Revamped these arguments and these ideas, and said, "Is there something we can learn here about where the edge of our civilization is? What, what's the limits of our tolerance?" And also um, interventionism—you know, mm-hmm. the fact that they think that they're
1: saving people from sacrifice or saving people from their crimes against nature—effectively, so this kind of long history of interventionism. And it's Enrico Dussel who describes uh, Sepúlveda as the uh, father of modern philosophy, in that he creates a framework for the subordination of some people over others. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you all very much. The producer seems to have disappeared, but um, <laughs> uh, oh,
3: he's here.
1: Uh, does
0: anyone like tea or coffee?
3: Tea, tea, please. Tea, tea please. Pl- tea, yeah, please. tea. Yeah. Thank, you. Yeah. thank you very much.
1: In our time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
3: Hi, it's Annette Katwala. And Charlotte Stavrou
2: here. We wanted to tell you that season two of All Consuming from BBC Radio 4 is here. In this series, we'll be once again delving into our culture of consumption by examining the services
3: and products that have changed the world. This time, we're looking at houseplants. I fell in love with that madly. The idea of just turning a plant into this giant analogue synthesiser. Running shoes. The beauty of it is you get a chance to understand performance at the highest level.
2: And tea. It's the connection and the safety cues to your body that it's over and you're safe.
3: And much more. So join us for the second season of All Consuming, available on BBC Sounds.